The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Does that sound okay to everybody? We do Mark 14 today. That's the sermon I prepared, so... If you have an alternate text, do it on your own. Mark 14. Who walks in darkness and has no light? The prophet Isaiah asked. His advice is, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. I pray that I might speak to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be indeed acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. It was the songwriter Harlan Howard who said that country music was best described as three chords and the truth. Three chords and the truth. Well, we might say the same thing about Mark's gospel. In chapters 1 through 13, the prophetic chord of Jesus is played as it sounds out the truth of God's judgment and God's mercy, Jesus calling people to repent and believe the gospel. Here in chapter 14 and then 15, The priestly chord of truth is played as Jesus is taken away in judgment on behalf of his people. And then in chapter 16, Mark tells us of the triumph of Jesus, who is raised from the dead, and the chord of his kingly rule is played. As Mark has been telling us the truth concerning Jesus Christ, and has shown us Jesus Christ, who is truth, with a capital T, he also tells the truth about the human condition. A condition that is shared by all, including each of us who is in this room. The dissonant chords of betrayal and denial are often played by instruments out of tune. The discordant notes of crucify him are shouted out. In a scene perhaps somewhat similar to Belshazzar's feast, we might say that the handwriting appears on the the wall and the world, as represented then in Judas Peter and the nation of Israel, is found and tried and found wanting. Listen to the indictments. In chapter 14, first in verse 21, the indictment against Judas. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The indictment against Peter in verse 29 of Mark 14. 
Peter says to Jesus, oh, even if they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says to Peter, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. The indictment then against the people who come to take Jesus, representing the people of Israel. Jesus said to them, have you come out against uh, against?" Uh, with, as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. As the, the night unfolds, it will appear that Jesus is the one on trial. And in one sense, of course, he is. But what the world could not see that night and what the world still cannot perceive is that the world is on trial. Judas, Peter, the Jews, the world are the ones on trial. And Pilate's question that we will see in chapter 15 looms large over this text and over the whole night and even over the world today When Pilate asked the Jews, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Remember, nothing is neutral. You cannot be ambivalent about that issue. That question is the question that puts all of the human race on notice. Each and every person in this room, each and every person in my hearing, will stand in the judgment and in one way or another will be held accounts with this question, what did you do with Jesus, the King? Jesus is not on trial. We are. The three chords Mark plays in his gospel Tell us the truth concerning Jesus Christ and tell us the truth concerning our own selves. This is why from the very outset of the ministry of Jesus, he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand and uh, the only sensible thing to do is to repent and believe the gospel. You know, there was a time... Of course, when Judas appeared to believe the gospel. Dave Hulk and I were chatting about this at the men's breakfast yesterday morning, and Dave observed, you know, Judas was part of the group of men, the disciples that were sent out in Mark 6, and they sent out with power, and they were able to cast out demons, and they were able to heal the sick and do miracles. Judas was part of that. What happened to Judas? How is it that Judas could fall so far away and sin so grievously that Jesus would say it would have been better if he would never have been born? How could someone who came so close in proximity to Jesus now be so far from Jesus? Many of the Jews we've seen along the way in Mark and Mark's gospel have appeared to uh, respond positively to the message of Jesus. 
But in the end, evil proves too much for them to resist. And of course, the same is true of Peter and all of the disciples as they all run from Jesus at the end of it. And then the question comes back, well, that, if that is true of them, what hope is there for us? Will we deny? Will we betray? Will we reject? You know, of course, we would rather assume that somehow we're going to be the faithful ones. I mean, that's the scene, right? When, when, when Peter says, oh, hey, everybody else is going to run. I'm not running. I'm sticking to the end, Jesus. Even if it means I die with you, I'm sticking to the end. But, but that assumption is exactly the problem. And that is the problem of Christianity and the way Christianity is expressed. And in America, especially and perhaps in this room, we live with these assumptions. And we forget the warning that Jesus sounds out in verse number 38 when they are there in the garden and they're supposed to be praying. But what are they doing? They're sleeping. And Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this statement of truth, spoken by the one who is truth, is not just a statement of condemnation. It sounds like it, but I really believe it is the starting place for hope and the starting place for help for every disciple of Jesus who at some time in their life found themselves sleeping, right, when they're supposed to be awake. It is the place of honesty. It's the place where we say, oh Lord, my spirit indeed is willing but I too often am asleep. My, my flesh is weak. You, you see, it's not, it's not a condemnation against the disciples as much as it is a starting place for discipleship. That when we find ourselves asleep, we admit it. <laughs> we say, oh Lord, I need help. My spirit's willing, but Jesus, my flesh is so, so very weak. You see, at, at this point of the story, we need, we need to admit that Jesus seems to be, again, the only one who really understands how powerful and how destructive evil actually is. And that everyone, including his disciples who are with him in the garden, are susceptible, they are vulnerable to the deception of evil. We have seen from the very beginning of Mark's gospel all the way through it how the flesh, when the flesh is energized by evil, proves too much to overcome. How many times have we seen this in the gospel? The warning is given out, but the warning, although may have been received by a spirit that appears to be willing, the flesh rises up, empowered by evil. But alongside the weakness of humanity, as we have seen in Mark's gospel, Mark has also shown us Jesus, right? 
the one who rises above all of humanity, the one whose spirit and flesh were perfectly willing, coming together in pure and perfect obedience. And now as the life of Jesus, as it were the entirety of the 30 plus years that he was on this earth, condenses into this one moment, a moment filled with pain, a moment filled with sorrow as the cup is set before him. What do we see? We see not only a willing spirit, but we see the very life of Jesus, his flesh, if you will, his body buoyed up with hope. And he is strengthened as he says those words that we so much desire to say, O Lord, not my will, but what? Your will be done. And so we need to ask then, well, what is it exactly that strengthens the flesh of Jesus? Because whatever strengthens him, I need that as well for when my spirit is willing, but my flesh is out of step and I'm asleep. Well, I, I, would, I, I would say that, and again, I think the whole gospel bears this out, and that is that the power base that Jesus operates from is the word of God. Look at it in, in verse 21, again, as we go back into that scene where Jesus uh, levels this indictment against Judas, but what does it say about Jesus? For the Son of Man goes, what? As it is what? Written. As it is written. That, that should like alarm bell should be going off in your brain. Like when do we hear that language? It is in the wilderness temptation. When the, the devil comes and tempts Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Right? For it is written. For it is written. And we see Jesus again in the darkness of this moment rising up against the temptation of the flesh to just cave in and throw it in and give it up. He says, you know, here's how it is written. This is the way that the Son of Man is going to go, for it is written. Look at it again in verse number uh, 27 when Jesus uh, leaves with his disciples from the uh, upper room and he says all of you are going to fall away and what comes next in verse 27 for it is written and what was written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered jesus once again in this tense moment in this moment when things are coming together and they appear to be outside of his control he is leaning into he is resting upon the word of God, for it is written. And then again in verse number 48, as they come to take him, and Jesus says, have you come out with, you know, as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day by after day I was with you in the temple, teaching you didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Throughout Mark we have seen how the scriptures which are meant to shape and form God's people for obedience, shaped and formed Jesus, but actually hardened the hearts of many people. And we have talked about this 
over the three decades I've been here. And I, I, I in my mind, I always go back. I, I, I remember very little, you know, from my training, but I remember a, a, one teacher I had said this, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. And the same people that heard Jesus day after day after day, the religious leaders hearing Jesus day after day, live God's word, speak God's word, the power of God's word, their hearts were hardened against Jesus. And they began, right, not began, but they continued to use the word of God like a club, beating people over the head with it as their hearts grew harder and harder against the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, in the deep darkness of the betrayal, in the deep darkness of the denial, in the deep darkness of the rejection, what do we have from Jesus? We have Jesus living again on the power of the word of God. It is written. It is written. We have the much-loved Son of God showing the church, showing us what a life of surrender not only looks like, but how you actually get to a life of surrender, and that is your life is shaped and it is formed by God's word. So that just as Jesus was free from a life of hypocrisy, so that Jesus could actually say in that moment in the garden and actually thoroughly, completely mean it, not my will, but your will be done, so we too, the church, can rise above our, our kind of sleepiness and rise above our fleshly failures and we can say oh lord jesus let me be shaped let me be formed more and more by your word so that my flesh becomes as willing as my spirit often is willing so that just as my spirit is willing so my flesh will not be weak but will take up the task that i've been given by god through his word i think in this large passage judas peter and the people who come to get jesus are powerful lessons that we can learn from them each one of them they had an up close and personal experience with the word of god in flesh in the case of judas that word ended up condemning him in the case of peter what happened that word recovered him and in the case of the people, many of them, uh, you know, at Pentecost and after, through the Spirit's engagement, repented and they did believe the gospel. But here's my question for us. Are, are we being shaped and formed by God's word? What, what about you? It, it was somewhat of a willing spirit that got you here. But how about the flesh? How about the body? How about the actions that are to be taken? How do you answer the weakness of the flesh? Do we have a, a surrender that is growing to look more and more like the surrender of Jesus because it is flowing out of a life that is buoyed by God's word, that is showing us the path of the righteous is truly light. Will the good that overcomes evil flow from a surrendered life? 
resting on the promises of God to us? Will we grow deeper in our understanding of those promises? Will we avail ourselves to opportunities to learn God's word together beyond the Sunday morning sermon? Will we engage in a deeper, closer discipleship one another? Because in a day when there's so much failure across the board in the church, we need to disciple people towards both a willing spirit and a flesh that is empowered by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Will our instruments play tunes that are in harmony with the will of God? My mom's here. You, you can ask her as, as, as much as she didn't like it. We grew up in a home where a lot of country music was played. Three chords and the truth probably is a really good way to define that genre of music. But you know, I also grew up in a home where the three chords of Jesus Christ were played. And the truth of my humanity and the truth of the perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, were played as well. You know, I am a product of what has shaped and formed me throughout my life and I am grateful for that but you know I had to give myself to it I couldn't be ambivalent towards it nothing is neutral nothing is neutral there is a work of grace that creates a desire but I also need the grace to act on those good desires along with my my mom and, and our home, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that my life was centrally located in the church because it is within the context of the local church and all of its failings and all of its good things and all of its problems and all the stuff that makes up life in the church, it is within the context of the local church then because Christ is the head of that church that the good desires are strengthened. What we do not see in Mark 14 is any suggestion of a privatization of religious practice. Although the pendulum has swung in America to the individualism of Christianity and the personal you know, accessorizing of my own faith to the diminishing of the church as the central place where God's work is done in the lives of God's people. So I want to make some application then from this text. Application that I, I admit may not be obvious, but I do think is faithful to the text. And what I want to show you, and I'm just going to do it in an outline form, and then, uh, you know, you can maybe go through and fill in the blanks, or we can talk about it another time. I want to show you from Mark 14, the church, kind of foreshadowing what was to come. A foretaste of what was to come as it is learning to commune with the head of the church, the one who is also the chief bishop of our souls. And I do this because I do want to help us. We who have willing spirits that often find our flesh to be so very weak that we will learn to lean into the grace of God poured out in the church and once again, be nourished by her. 
I think it begins at the beginning of chapter 14 and the preparation of Jesus for his burial and through the anointing. And I think, again, there's a foreshadowing of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that would be poured out and come upon the church. And I would say that in this thing of preparation, as this unnamed woman prepares Jesus for his burial... So there is wisdom then in the church understanding that just as the Spirit is poured out upon us and just as we are buried in the likeness of Christ's death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection, we too need to be doing some preparing. The most important thing you can do before you ever come into the church on a Sunday morning is get ready on Saturday for the gathering on Sunday. It is without a doubt the reason why there is so much of a disconnect on Sunday morning is that no preparation has been given prior to Sunday. And what you do on Saturday night matters. And what you do even on early Sunday morning matters as to how you are discipled and how you are strengthened in faith on a Sunday morning. We see them then gathering in communion with Jesus at this last Passover feast as Jesus now institutes that which we continue to do week by week, a gathering and communion with Jesus in verses 22 through 25. That we are sinners whose sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. The blood poured out in the new covenant. That we are a people of thanksgiving who receive all that Christ is to us, the fullness of God to us today through his spirit and then in verse number 26 I love it that when they leave the upper room and they're going to the Mount of Olives and then to the garden that is part of the mount there what do they do in verse 26 they sing a hymn they sing a hymn I, I said yesterday at the men's breakfast I wonder what they sang and it didn't take Mike two seconds to say in the garden they sing in the garden that was a good one, Mike. Jewish tradition tells us that most likely they sang one of the psalms between 113 and 118 of the Psalter. And it's interesting especially to think that if they did indeed sing portions of Psalm 118, it kind of ties together what was being sung when Jesus enters the city on uh, what we traditionally call Palm Sunday from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who what? comes in the name of the Lord. And then on the night of his betrayal, rehearsing those words again, the rejection of the cornerstone. But the cornerstone crushing those that reject him. They sing, we are to be a singing people. And I'm always tempted to throw in a little commercial for you know, activities that we have in the church except to say, what better place to sing together than at the hymn sing? Get your name on that sign up. Bring a pie. Bring some cheese and crackers. Bring whatever else that's on there that I always forget what that other thing is. And chips and chips and dip. Thank you, Karen. Yeah. Thank you, Karen. Bring some chips and dip and come and sing. Sing just as they sing. We're still a singing people, singing our praises to God. But then you see that, that they engage in the word with Jesus. 
In verses 27 and following, you have this engagement where Jesus is telling them, here's what's going to happen. The shepherd is going to be struck down. You're going to be scattered. But I'm going to be raised up. I'm going to go before you to Galilee. And in how many sermons do you argue with God every, every, how many times do you argue with God in a sermon? How many times do you say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's not true of me. May it be true of those people over there, those people over there, the holy ones here in the middle don't have that problem. Uh, you know, and you have this argument with God, or you go away after church and say, that guy didn't know what he was talking about. And Jesus says, no, you know what, I do know what I'm talking about. And the guy up front may not look like much, but I'm talking through him. You better pay attention. You better look at what I'm saying. Unless you're like Peter. Uh, that's not me. Oh, yeah, Peter, actually it is you. But I love the, the foreshadowing this for the church. When the church is gathered around the word and Jesus is speaking the word. And the people are like, no, that's not what's going to happen to me. And yes, it is what's going to happen to you. And Jesus says, well, don't worry. At the end of it all, I'm going to be ahead of you anyway. And I'm going to regather you. In Galilee, and we have this hope, don't we, as God's people, that Jesus is always ahead of us. He's always ahead of us. He's always ready to regather us, which then allows us then to come into the sweet fellowship of prayer with Jesus. This garden prayer where Jesus is so deeply distressed, his soul is sorrowful. Hey, watch with me. Can't you, can't you even watch for an hour? And that warning about the spirit of the flesh comes up and then Jesus is there praying and we're reminded today we have a merciful and faithful high priest on high who intercedes for his people and we the church invited into that intercession together as the body of Christ. And as all of this stuff comes together then we go out of this place with Jesus and what do we do? We confront the darkness just as Jesus confronted the darkness. I've probably told you this before. I'm going to say it again because I, I just think it's so great. And I get the sentiment of the, of, you know, above the, the door of the church when you leave, you're now entering a mission field. And I, I truly believe that's true. But some years ago now, I was, um, I was in uh, Russia visiting our partner church and they took me outside uh, to the ancient, somewhat ancient uh, citadel of Suzdal, which is just, just full of, of these little churches. It's an amazing place. And, I, and I, it's just like etched into my memory. And then one of these little churches, when you, when you come in, when you come in the doors, on the front of the wall, the mural, is all of the glories of heaven. The angels and the archangels and the Trinity and God being worshipped painted on the walls it's beautiful and then when you turn around and you walk out on the back wall this massive mural a mural is uh the demons and the dark forces and the evil that are waiting for you as you walk out as a reminder because there again is the church and there are the saints of god being martyred the saints of god standing firm and standing strong and you know the words you're entering mission that's nice i like that but oh, that was so emphatic. We go out of this place and we do battle with Jesus in the darkness of the world in which we live. Here's the church in seed form. Here's the church for a foretaste of what is to come. And here we are today watching Jesus. He descends further into the darkness. And as he does, he has you and I in mind 
as he is being taken away for the sins of his people. He is being taken away because he is that faithful and merciful high priest who alone now will stand in the gap between the dead and the living. And this is how the human condition, marred by sin, is going to be restored. And you know what? You and I are invited into a relationship with him in the way that he has defined it. Repent and believe the gospel. The three chords of Jesus have been played. The truth of Jesus has been proclaimed. And the truth about us has been proclaimed as well. You know, right now, your spirit may be willing to receive it. But be mindful that your flesh is still so very weak. So may the Spirit of God help us to battle well so that we can say, not our will be done, O God, but your will be done. Father, I pray that now as we gather around this table, this blessed table, with your word of with your word in our hearts and in our minds, oh Lord, that we would be free from hypocrisy and free from any fear and free from any discouragement. That our flesh would be made strong to join with a willing spirit. And let us rejoice in the victory that you have won. In Jesus' good name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.